Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,325. This is a very special mile marker show today. I'm celebrating nine years of producing and hosting the Cars Yeah podcast. I'm really honored to have brought you guys 2,325 shows and shared the stories of so many enthusiasts and their inspirational stories. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for riding along with me and giving me your time one of my past guests, Greg Blue, after appearing here on Cars Yeah, well, Greg asked me if he could interview me. See, we hit it off despite our very different backgrounds and career paths, but the world of cars, like it always does, made us instant friends. And perhaps our shared history of catching waves surfing helped a little bit too. So today I'm in Maui with a very special guest by the name of Greg Blue. Well, who's going to be flipping the mic on me and doing what he likes to call a Hawaiian Greg's grilling? So buckle up and perhaps you'll learn a thing or two about me, the story behind Cars Yeah, and my lifelong passion for cars and people's stories. Like an uncharted road trip, who knows where this is going to go. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Aloha. Aloha, Greg. <laughs> this is cool. How are you doing, Mark? I am doing great. You know, nothing like being in the islands and uh, thinking about catching some waves with a past guest of mine. So, Greg, I'm happy to be here. Hey, surf came up this morning, double overhead. Wish you were here. <laughs> uh, you know, at this point in my life, I think I might want to catch the uh, rollers out there in front of a Waikiki first to get my feet back <laughs> underneath me. It's been a little while. Last time I surfed was Maui. Uh, on my 50th birthday, went out with my son, actually caught some waves and had some fun. But double overhead, maybe need a little more practice with you <laughs> before I do that. Well, Mark, you know, I met you uh, last year, I think, um, at Pebble Beach. Yep. And um, you walked up to me and started a chat and you were after my hat. It ends up. <laughs> I still have it, by the way. <laughs> I usually give that Rolex uh, hat away to kids or, you know, somebody who's interested. And, um, you know, you seem like a nice guy. So oh, I took off my hat to you. <laughs> you did. You know, we both go to the same barber and I, I always try right. to wear a hat. My wife says, I don't want you to be one of those those old guys with those funky spots on your head. So uh, I always try to protect my head. But, you know, I've always coveted those hats. Um, and last year, a uh, year before, I got to ride on the uh, tour. But the people that took me, they kept the hats. But you were nice enough to give it away. By the way, I ran into Steve Larimer, who was riding with you in your Porsche this past oh, yeah. weekend, Exotics at Redmond Town Center. He said to say hi. All right. Well, you know, you really wanted the, one of those hats. I don't care about those hats. And that's why I gave it to you. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, uh, I wore it the other day. And, you know, what struck me after my interview with you was how much time we spent on the phone afterwards. And um, I started asking you how you got to where you are. And that's what instigated my offer Hey, why don't I interview you? You know, because you've had a really interesting life. So here we are. So this is an El Spontaneo 
uh, interview. I hope it doesn't go up in smoke. <laughs> well, but, if, uh, if it does, we'll just uh, have a barbecue, roast a pig, and uh, enjoy it on the beach, right? So, look, let's start at the beginning. Of course, this whole interview is going to be a long story short. Okay. okay. So <laughs> yeah. let's start out with the basics. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? And what was your last educational endeavor and in what institution? And after we get that out of the way, we'll find out what comes next. All right. Well, I was uh, made in Japan. A few listeners know that. My parents were living in Japan. My dad was uh, doing his two... Yeah, made in Japan. I got it stamped on my my butt somewhere. I can't see it, and I'm not going to show it to you, but uh, yeah, somewhere there. And uh, yeah, he was uh, doing two-year stint in the Army because of his ROTC requirements in college. He went to uh, University of Oklahoma, studying engineering and architecture. My parents went over there, so I was conceived, but my mom didn't want to have me there. So she went back home early. My dad made it back home just in time for my birth in Oklahoma, where my mom was from. So I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In fact, I've had two guests on the show who were born in the same hospital. One was born a week different later than I was. I could have still been there. Who knows? When she was born, so small world. And then my parents uh, moved promptly out west, and they lived in Tucson, Arizona for a few years until I was in second grade, and then they went further west to La Jolla, California. Actually, we lived in Del Mar, which is just north of La Jolla, and spent a year in Del Mar where we could walk to the beach. There in my love for the ocean began, and I started belly boarding. If you remember those back in the day, before before boogie boards. And then they uh, moved to La Jolla. My dad was an architect and my mom was, uh, she worked off and on, but she was mostly stay-home mom. So she was there when we got home from school and took care of us. So I grew up in uh, La Jolla, very idyllic childhood. You know, I just, I always tell people there, I, I think I saw one fight in high school, the whole time I was in high school. And it was more of a shoving match than anything. <laughs> it was a really laid back place. La Jolla was very different back then. I just returned from the La Jolla Concord. La Jolla is a very different place now, but we used to go to the beach. We'd go surfing during lunch. And uh, during that time, uh, my passion for cars grew because a lot of my friends' dads had very cool cars because La Jolla was more affluent. There was money there. And uh, yeah, so that's where the love for cars really started to gel but my dad started it he bought a 49 mgtc and used to cruise around the coast in that thing and uh, that's the car that got it started for me so that's the the abbreviated version went through high school worked my tail off all the time had my own business detailing business from the time i was about 14 i delivered papers for five years i can't believe i did that for five years but I'd be up early, so after my paper route, I'd go surfing and then go to school. So that was kind of an easy way to do Dawn Patrol. Sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. Familiar. Did the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that that taught me a lot about hard work and communication skills with people. You had to go and collect every month. You know, nothing like walking up to a door, you're a little kid, and you ring the doorbell, and they turn the light off. <laughs> and don't answer that. You got to collect your $4.50. Right. Yeah. So uh, went uh, graduated from La Jolla High and then went to UCSD, uh, which is right up the hill uh, in La Jolla there. And my wife was attending that school a few years later as an engineering major. I was a communications major who didn't know what he wanted to do. And I ended up transferring to uh, San Diego State, 
where I could double major in business and graphic design and advertising. So that's a very quick version to get you through the college years, graduated and uh, got a job with an advertising firm in San Diego. And uh, that kind of launched my career into marketing and, and advertising. So graphic design. So when you got your first job, what did you actually do? I was a graphic designer in a small advertising firm in Old Town, San Diego. A guy named Richard Warner let me do an internship there in my senior year. And back then was before computers. So you would have to draw and create things. And we designed brochures and catalogs for commercial real estate agents originally. But we did logos and all sorts of marketing material. And so did he just like turn you loose or did he give you? parameters? Or? Oh, no. When you started in that field, you were a production artist. So okay. he would go out and bring in the business. There were three other women in the company. It was a very small firm. And they would come up with designs and then they dump it on my desk and go, hey, Mark, you need to, you know, make this look pretty and get it ready for the printer. That's how it kind of all started. But very quickly, I asked Richard Warner, I said, how can I make more money? And he kind of laughed and he said, well, bring in work. And I said, how, no. do, how do I do that? And he said, well, you know, you can uh, on Thursdays and Fridays put a suit on and we'll go downtown and walk into buildings and look at the, the board that says what kind of companies are in there. And we go upstairs. And if we're lucky enough to get past the receptionist and talk to somebody who makes decisions about their marketing goals, we sit down and we tell them we can help. And so he taught me how to do that sales thing, the, the cold pitch, really. Again, this was before cell phones, before computers. So you just had to go into a building and try to get somebody to listen to you. So I learned how to to be a rep, you know, an advertising rep, if you will. But right. also I got to do the part I liked, which was the design. So I worked there for 11 years. We grew that firm into over 24 people, I think, when I left there. So yeah, it was uh, a good education. He was a great guy, taught me a lot of things about business and design and all that kind of thing. So uh, I, I liked it. It was fun. So you spent 11 years there. Yep. And then that led you to? Well, uh, I landed an account. I came home from work one day and there was a catalog, direct mail catalog uh, that my wife said, hey, this looks like a neat company. And it was called Griot's Garage. <laughs> a lot of people call it Griot's. In fact, I ran into a guy at the car show this past weekend who said Griot. And I said, well, that's not the way you pronounce it. It isn't. That was something we dealt with when I was there. So at any rate... I called Richard Griot and had to call many times for him before he would really listen to me. In fact, the way I got into a meeting with him was I said, I think it was my seventh call. I said, look, I'm not going to pitch you. I want to come up and buy a couple hundred bucks worth of your product, but I don't want to pay for the shipping. So it's up in, he was just up in Vista, which is North County, San Diego. He used to surf up there, Oceanside, Vista, it's just a little inland. And so I drove, I was driving an 84 Porsche Cabriolet at the time, platinum with chocolate brown interior. It was a really wonderful car for SoCal. Top was down all the time. And uh, drove up there and met him and convinced him because our firm was the first company in San Diego to use Macintosh computers to do oh. design. PageMaker was a software. It was these little tiny screens, but we thought we'd died and gone to heaven if we could only have seen the future and the vision of what we have today. And mm. so uh, convinced him that uh, we could do a better job with his catalog and landed that account and started doing that account along with a lot of other catalogs 
for people because the real estate industry had gone upside down as it does in cycles. So we focused on direct mail catalog businesses and other companies. And so picked that account up and started working on that, that account. So that was the beginning of what was to come. Well, let's go back to the 1984 Porsche convertible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So are you saying that you were making enough money in advertising to afford, number one, a business suit that you had to go out <laughs> and sell with? Sure. And Porsche. I mean, were you making good money after a few years? Yeah, I think for the time I was because I was making, I was getting a percentage of the business I brought in. So I figured- Ooh. I figured out pretty quickly that, well, the more work I bring in, the more I make, right? And I always liked cool cars. At the time, I had bought my first new car when I was a junior in college because I always had a side hustle. I always had a business. I was detailing cars. That's what put me through college. I paid for my own college that way. And I was making really good money detailing cars. Um, I had a huge marketplace in La Jolla, people with nice cars. Okay, how much do you charge? Oh, gosh. Uh, my first client was an FBI agent who lived next door to us, Mr. Swanson. Swanson. Swanson was his name. Swanson. I think they make some kind of food product. And uh, Mr. Swanson bought the first 450 SL that was sold in La Jolla, San Diego County, I think, from Heinz Geetz, uh, mm-hmm. Mercedes-Benz. And he brought that car home. And I went over and I said, oh, this is so cool. And he, he said, well, I know you're always out there washing your folks cars would you like to wash my car and i said well i'll detail your car Mm. okay so he let me this was when i was 14 he let me back it out i brought it home i spent all day on that thing i polished i didn't polish it didn't need it i waxed it i cleaned it it looked really good i brought it back to his garage and he walked out and he said man things looked better than when i picked it up and i said well thanks for letting me do your car mr swanson and i started to walk away and he goes well wait a minute I, I'm going to pay you. And I went, you're going to pay me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. I was so excited to just, you know, right. play, play with this car. And he said, how much do you want? And I said, I, I don't know. Now, again, this was 1974. So I was not even, I think I not even had my license yet. How old were you, like 15 or I something? 14. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 70, 73, I think it was. It was fall of 73 when the 74s came out. So the, so the minimum wage was like a dollar and a quarter an hour. Oh, yeah. It was very yeah, okay. little. So um, I said, I don't know. How much should you pay me? And he said, well, how about 25 bucks? And I went, what? $25? I could mm-hmm. buy a new surfboard with that. You know, mm-hmm. I think you could buy a new McLeod surfboard in La Jolla at Mitch's Surf Shop for like $40 almost, you know. And uh, so I was excited. I came home and showed my dad how much. And he said, well, you look like you like that. Why don't you start your own business and stop delivering papers? Stop waking me up at four in the morning. And uh, so he helped me make up a business card. I called it Auto Care. In fact, the illustration on that business card, I wish I I might still have one somewhere, uh, was a Porsche Turbo. Because they had just the first gen turbos had just come out. In the yeah. 70s, right? And so I do this drawing. And so I asked my paper paper route manager, could I put flyers in my papers? Well, he shouldn't have said yes, because that led to me quitting. He even, t- he even told me that he, he liked me because I was very diligent. You know, I didn't cause him any troubles. In fact, on Sundays, he would take me out for donuts because, uh, you know, I just never caused any troubles. I tried to do a really good job for my customers. I learned that from my dad being an architect and having clients. So, uh, yeah, that kind of started it. But 
as that grew and through high school and then into college, yeah, I was charging anywhere from, I don't know, probably 50 bucks to do a car, sometimes 75 bucks. And most of my clients would tip me. In fact, I would tell a lot of them, I'd call them, I, I called it dialing for dollars. I'd say, hey, my tuition's due next month. I need to do cars. And they would all give me, in fact, one guy, Sam Salemi, he had a Ferrari Dino. Uh, the thing was purple, a factory purple Dino that was built for share. The singer. Oh, I've, I've heard of that car. Yeah, yeah, she also had a yellow one. But uh, yeah, so at any rate, he had that car and... Um, uh, I remember one time he said, uh, how you doing for tuition? And I said, well, I got to buy my books. They're going to be about 20 bucks. And he goes, well, here's 20 bucks. Go buy your books, kid. You know, I mean, so I had all these great <laughs> clients and rapport and everything. But yeah, I learned a lot about business, learned about um, taking care of people's cars. Um, I brought home one of the first Rolls-Royce convertible Corniches. I think it was a 75. And my mom came out and she goes, is this a Rolls-Royce? And I said, Mom, this car is $150,000. She goes, that's more than we paid for our house. She, she goes, you can't drive this thing. And I, you know, but I had all these great clients and I just made a lot of money. In fact, I remember I would have some acquaintances at school who thought I was a drug dealer because I always had money. And uh, one guy asked me once, he goes, hey, man, I got to buy some pot off you or something. And I go, what? And uh, I, go, I don't sell drugs. And he goes, well, you always seem to have money. And. I had bought a new car. My first new car was my junior year in, in college. I bought a 79 Scirocco and oh. right off the showroom floor. And uh, so I said, well, you know, I don't do drugs. I just work really hard all the time. And uh, yeah, that's how I had the money. But that Scirocco was that first new car. And then the uh, the car we're talking about, the cab, that was my second 911. The first one was a 74 that I bought, uh, used from a guy, and he had restored the car. It was guards red and black with uh, red piping on the seats. And uh, yeah, that was a cool car. But it was, uh, I wanted something a little newer and cooler, and I ended up finding that uh, Cabriolet for sale over in Coronado. So yeah, long story short, long-winded story to your question. Yes, I was making pretty good money. That helped my wife and I buy our first house. Um, which was in Del Mar, kind of North City West, just on the east side of Highway 5. But it was a brand new housing development where they were building all these homes and stuff. And she was working too, I have to say. You know, she was a civil engineer that she got a great job right out of college. So together we were, you know, we weren't rich, but we were making enough money yeah. to, to buy yeah. our first home. Our first house was, I remember it was $145,000, I think. That house is probably worth $2 million bucks nowadays, you know. So yeah, different times. Well, let's move forward now. So at what point did you leave the advertising agency and what brought that on and, and what was the next step? Well, Richard Griot, he had started that business and he there was only another guy there and then a secretary and then a kid would stop on his way home from school to pack boxes. It was just the beginning <laughs> of a mail order catalog business. Yeah. And so uh, he asked me after about, two years of us designing and producing, maybe sooner, of his book, he said, why don't you come on board and help me build this business? Oh. Ooh. And I said, well, um, you know, I've been at this firm for a long time. My boss at the time was kind of hinting that he was going to retire at some point and maybe I could buy the business from him or, you know, take over something. We weren't really sure. I never dreamed I would leave San Diego. 
Oh. And Richard Grio wanted to get out of California for the reasons a lot of people escape California these days. It was not business friendly even 30 years ago. And this was 30 years ago. And so I went, wow, this was a big deal because not only was I taking a massive risk leaving a solid job that had this future kind of laid out was mm-hmm. to go work at a startup with a guy that I didn't know that well. And he said, by the way, I'm going to move to the state of Washington because there's no state income tax there. It's more friendly. It was. <laughs> now it's not. More friendly to business. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be going. And if you're going to join me, you're going to have to move. And my wife and I kind of went, well, all our family's here. Oh, man. My wife had a job. Uh, there that she really liked. She was she's a super smart lady. Loves mathematics and all that. Still does math puzzles at night before she falls asleep. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> way smarter than me. So we had to do some soul searching. But the obvious opportunity to me was I can learn how to build a business completely outside of my realm. I can still do the graphic design and the creative stuff I love so much. And if you don't take a huge risk, you don't get a gain, right? So this sounds like a huge I mean look it's one thing to accept an offer on a future that you're not sure of it's another thing to pack up your whole family sell everything move out of there I mean yeah that's that's serious and I mean did he give you much information on like your job description did he give you any numbers about what he's making, projected income, what, I mean, did you get any? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, you know, (laughs) he he was financing that company and, you know, he was doing fine because of his family. And so the monetary side, I kind of real, okay, he shared with me personal stuff and I went, okay, so there's not a huge risk there, you know, because we got the, the financial side pretty much nailed down. But what we were going to do and where we were going to go was roughly defined, you know, a little bit. But but Ray, basically I was hired as like a, I think my title was vice president of marketing, but I did, you know, I wore so many hats, my hair got worn off. Uh, At least that's the excuse I use. And so my job was to do a lot of things, find new products, uh, design and produce the catalog, start to help build the brand. Uh, How do we expand? How do we get more people? What do we need? Um, we came up here to the Pacific Northwest and started looking at warehouses to either buy or rent. Uh, my eventual job was to move the whole business up here and get an office while he stayed down there. And then we did a move over the weekend with trucks that went went up and brought everything up. And yeah, I uh, the advantage here was I learned a lot about a lot of things. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, financially, financially, um, I mean... Did were you in it for like a part of the company? Or yeah, yeah. I had a I had a, I had a percentage of the business. Okay. I owned it. Yeah, I was. Okay. Yeah, I was given a, a. It wasn't huge, but it was a, a. You know, enough that it made sense. And my pay, uh, while it didn't match what my wife and I were making, uh, there was potential there that I saw that was more than where I was before. So, uh, but the the biggest part of this, as I look back and even hearing you say it, was holy cow, we we did that. I mean, that took guts, man. That I was mean, that was kind of. It was scary. And we left all of our support. You know, I mean, our families were not happy. My parents, her parents about us leaving because we we had a five-year-old and a five-month-old baby. Uh And plus, when we got up here, 
we realized without that support, Jill should stay home and raise the kids. So, mm. you know, we lose half of our income because she was a high wage earner at the time for what wages were. But looking back, awesome decision. I mean, yeah, it was. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, but you know what? People today say, well, we can't make it on t- one income. Well, yes, you can. And, and I know times are different and stuff's more expensive, but we lost half our income. And so now the, the market here was a little different. We lucked out by having a very strong market in California. So the house had increased in value. So we had equity that we could put towards a much nicer home here. And just the market was different. Things are cheaper here than mm. La Jolla, California yeah. or Telmark. Yeah. yeah. So we got a nice home. and But, you know, you just you stop going out to eat. You stop taking nice vacations. You stop buying all the stuff you really don't need. And you get down to work and focus on building a brand and making money with that brand. And that's what we did. And I was there for almost 20 years, technically over 20 years because- Really? Yeah. So from, from the time you accepted his offer and moved the whole company up there and then grew the company, that was 20 years? Yeah, it was actually a little more than that because uh, I'd forgotten this. My wife reminds me all the time. The last two months- before I left my old company, because I didn't want to leave my old business partner in the lurch. I worked there, and then I worked nights and weekends at Grio's Garage for free until the first of the year, uh, yeah. helping plan and, and build and do things. So I had two full-time jobs for two months. One, I wasn't getting paid anything, um, but I was I wanted to get into it as quick as I could, but I didn't want to leave my old business partner in the lurch. He wasn't that happy that I was leaving because I think he saw me as his secession, you know. Uh, yeah. But um, but he was good about it. He was always, he was a super guy, real nice guy. And uh, he taught me a lot as well, just about morals and ethics and business and so forth. But yes, we came up here and we've lived up here almost 30 years now. And wow. so I was technically at Grios for just shy of 20 years, but... I was working with Richard Griot from almost the beginning. So you could add three years to that as him being a client and so forth. So, yeah, and that whole 10-year, 20-year plus was a learning of massive proportions. We we acquired a chemical company to manufacture our own products. We created, we branded almost everything that we had as Griot's. I traveled the world looking for products that we could brand and make with our name on them. I started vintage racing when I was there, got to do that. My wife got to stay home. She always says that was the best gift you ever gave me was enabling me to stay home and raise the children and not have to to work and uh well work outside of the home (laughs) i was at work you know 12 hours a day so sadly um i learned another lesson looking back now i spent way too much time at work and not enough time at home but it worked out and my kids grew up to be very healthy self-supporting adults at least they haven't called home for money yet and uh, they're both doing really proud of them they're doing great so yeah but that was that was a long haul but it taught me taught me a massive amount of things and um that even as I've been doing what I'm doing now on this nine-year anniversary, um, and it's been 10 years since I left Griot's Garage, because I took a year off. Now, that's a story to tell. What did I do that year off? You want to ask? When did the year off start? When you left Griot's? Yeah, when I left Griot's, it was 2013, and a couple big major things had happened. 
My dad had fallen. He was 80 at the time and broken his neck. He got the Christopher Reeve break, C2 vertebrae break. He fell off a deck he was building, 10 feet, landed on his head. And oh. um, yeah, and so it was terrible. And he he really had a tough time. I mean, luckily he was alive and not paralyzed, but uh, he went through a long time. At the same time, my mother-in-law got cancer. And so my mom's a, a cancer survivor and she's done great since then. But uh, Jill's mom got cancer. So we were working and dealing with that. And then, you know, I was, I had left and then Jill got a major tumor in her leg that was like, what is going on here? She had this ongoing pain, couldn't figure out what it was. She came to meet me at a SEMA show. I've been to SEMA like 30 times. And we were going to have the week, spend the weekend with the Brocks, Peter, Pete Brock, of Daytona yeah. fame and his yeah. his wife, Gail. And uh, Jill came and she goes, my leg is just really killing me. And that whole weekend at the Brox, I could tell she was in a lot of pain. And when we got back, um, she went to a, a specialist and he said, you've got a huge tumor growing in your tibia. This is big deal. Might be cancer. We don't know. And so that year, it, just as I was leaving Grios and making the decision, because things had changed there, I wasn't really happy there anymore. And it just had evolved and it was time to go do something else. What that else was, I don't know. But what I learned was that that something else was uh, I need to be home and care for my wife. So she had a major surgery. It's like an eight hour long surgery. And she was in bed for months. She couldn't walk. Yeah, it was really scary on top of my dad, you know, worrying about him, her mom. It was just like the triple trifecta explosion, yeah. you know, things come in threes. And so while I was trying to figure out what to do, I had a few headhunters call me. I had a lot of friends call me and, you know, can I connect you with this? And I did some interviews, but everything I did, it was like, that sounds terrible. I even had one guy tell me, you shouldn't work here. You should start your own business. He goes, you're just, you've got that mindset. He goes, you wouldn't last year. You wouldn't be happy. If he, he wanted me to run his business, but it was like paper, the paper yeah. business, boring. So um, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to figure out what to do. And my son was in college. That was the other, that was the fourth whammy. He was attending a very expensive school on the East Coast. We had just got through paying for our daughter's private college education in California. So we're licking our wounds from that four-year experience. And then Blake went off to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, and was studying there. Prominent, probably the best design school in the country. It's a little pricey. <laughs> it's a lot pricey. So, so hang on. So so none of your kids have called home asking for money yet, but you spent hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> yeah. putting them through school. Well, okay. You know, the the kid, we put the kids in private school from the time they were in kindergarten. Yeah. Uh, I just was not happy with the school system. Uh, if I had a child today, it would not that child would not be in the public school system. I'm sorry, uh, yeah. it's upside down. But we had always put them in private school. Best money ever spent. I mean, it taught them how to be thinkers. How to they were smart. I mean, they were smart anyway because they had their mom, right? I mean, she would tutor them when they got home from school. So yeah, so uh, my son actually came home for a break. And I said, what am I, you know, usually it's the son asking the dad, what am I going to do for a living? I, I was walking with my son going, what am I going to do for a living? And he said, dad, you should start your own business. And he said, you should talk to people who are, are in the car world. You should start a podcast. Now, again, this was almost 10 years ago. And I said, what's that? <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. there weren't many podcasters. Right. And in the car world, I think the only person was Adam Carolla. But he knew what one was. I mean, your son did. 
Oh yeah, young kids. Yeah, yeah you listen to him all the time. Maybe because he's young. He's young. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, he said, "Well, I'm going to give you some podcasts you should listen to." Oh, cool. I did that, and I started thinking about it, and quite honestly, I said, "I said maybe I should try this." Well, everybody I suggested it to just looked at me like I was an alien. <laughs> like you're going to do what? That's what normally happens when you have a good idea. Well, okay. <laughs> I guess I know that now, but at the time it was a little spooky, right? Yeah. But I, I told my son and, and my wife and, and my daughter, she was supportive of it as well. I said, you know, I need to do something at home. And this new, this computer world, this internet world is blowing up. There's all these people making money on YouTube and podcasting. And why can't I do that? If I knew what it was, <laughs> you know? Right. So I... I studied, and honestly, in three months' time, I set a goal that I wanted to launch this show on the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of my departure from Grio's Garage. That okay. was my, I, I, you know, I'm a kind of guy that I like doing the business plans. I like being very thorough. I'm an I'm a anal retentive nutcase on things having to be in place and perfect. So I, I said, if I don't set a goal here, I'm not going to do it. Okay. I mean, we produce catalogs at Grio's. 17 a year, and I was responsible for that. I never missed a press date, ever. Did you say 17? Yeah, we would do as much as 17 books a year that would go out. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to be on time. you got to get merchandise picked out, produced, delivered in your warehouse. You've got to have shoot store, you know, shoot pictures. And I mean, it's it's a process. And then you got to go print it and you got to mail it. And people get it and they call you, you hope. <laughs> you know, well, you know <laughs> I'm going to interject here for a second. You know, I don't know how I ended up getting the Griot's catalog in the 80s. And I guess you were still working there in the 80s, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So I'm in Hawaii and I get this Griot's catalog. And like every one of them I ever got, I'm reading it from cover to cover, looking at each and every item they've got. Cool. And anything that interests me, you know, there's a blur. And so in those days, shipping to Hawaii was extremely expensive. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so I try to order this stuff and the shipping would cost more than the product. Oh, sure. Yep. Having said that, I this must have been 20 years ago. There was three products in there that I ordered. Okay. okay. One of them was the horsehair car wash <laughs> oh yeah i i know about that and the other one was they made a phillips head screwdriver that was chrome plated in two different sizes like the eight inch one and like i don't know the 16 inch one was that the uh the facome um made by it the, was a phillips screwdriver yeah but was it made by facome or did it have a griot's garage brand on Grio. it Okay. Yeah, that came from a, a a very interesting company in the Black Forest of Germany that was a family who'd been making uh, screwdrivers for like 100 years. So last week, 20 years out, I washed my car again with that horsehair brush that basically, <laughs> besides a faded handle, is in exactly the same condition as I bought it 20 years ago. And I took those two screwdrivers with me to fix a sink up the street, and they looked like the day I bought them. So that's my Griot's Garage story. The quality of those products, I mean, 
the, those screwdrivers, you know, the, the Phillips head, I mean, I guess it's tempered or something. I mean, to this day, there's not a scratch or a nick. And those things are in incredible condition. So well done. Well, thank you. Uh, now, I have to correct you on one thing. That was not horse hair. It was hog's hair. What kind of hair? Hog. Hog's oh, hair. Oh, hog's hair. It was okay. hog's hair. Yeah. And, and it's still straight. Oh, yeah. And, no, it's one of the... <laughs> washing cars. 20 years. It's still downstairs on my rack. Yeah. Well, I remember the copy for that went something like this. Hog's hair brush is very hard to make. First, you got to catch a hog. <laughs> so the, the the whole copywriting issue there was and it was a Richard wrote a lot of the original copy and then I took over and I had to write it as if I was him because it was all written in first person. Okay. So that was a process. I even had a hat that had Richard embroidered on it so that I would try to I, I thought differently about stuff because I came from the advertising world, problem solution. Richard came from the I use it, therefore you should okay. world. Yeah. So yeah. but yeah, that brush um yeah, I, I tell you, we could do a thousand shows on manufacturing products and dealing with right, products right, and right. everything. But I'm happy to hear that because we did strive to try to sell the best. In the early days, we got beat up a lot because of high pricing, but it was the best stuff. And it's like, do you want to yeah, buy? Yeah, it was the best stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we catered to a very high end clientele instead of trying to cater to everybody at the bottom. And so we just kind of forgot about those folks and just focused on what we did. And uh, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that because we worked very hard to not only source those products, but to, we were the first catalog company to offer a lifetime guarantee, which meant not your life, the life of the product, which should be forever. Well, I'll pass it down to my son, but let's get back <laughs> to um, your... Um, yeah, back to the, the your, caring for my wife and trying to... Trying, podcast, yeah. Yeah, trying to figure out a podcast. So... The idea of Cars Yeah, the name came from my wife, actually, because at the time, try to find, even today, try to find a URL that's not taken that has the word cars in it. I came up with hundreds, because I was a copywriter, I was a designer, I was a creator, hundreds of names, and every one of them was taken. I tried to even buy some from some people, but they were, you know, they either wanted crazy amounts of money or you couldn't figure out who they were, who owned the name. But one night, she was watching commercial for, I think it was... Uh, hotel.com or something, one of those dot-com companies. And they would say, hotels.com, hotels, yeah. And she looked at oh. me and she said, yeah. And I said, what? She said, cars, yeah. And I said, what? <laughs> she goes, cars, yeah, you fool. Go go see if it's taken. So I go in and sure enough, it's not taken. And so that's how the name was born because I was at the time developing the entire business plan for the podcast. And that included... Me having to figure out how to do stuff I had never done. I'm a good designer, so I had to figure out how to create a website. Now, I could design it, but how to do it? Right. Um, coding? I mean, that's another planet. So I figured out through a WordPress theme, but I didn't do everything the way I wanted, so I had to figure out how to do a little bit of coding and adjust it. So Cars yeah, I was born. I grabbed that. Um, I created the trademarked slogan for my brand, which is inspiring automotive enthusiasts. That's the why. Why am I doing this? What is the theme uh, that I'm interviewing inspiring automotive enthusiasts? And uh, so the whole thing was created. So in three months from basically Christmas to, well, actually no, it was March to May, into, into January to May, I had to meet that deadline. 
of launching mm -hmm. a first show. And I was literally, I had created the website. I watched so many YouTube pages, uh, how to do coding, how to do websites, how to record shows, what kind of software to get, what kind of microphone to buy. All this stuff that I had to learn, I was up night and day. My neighbors across the street used to laugh and say, did you stop sleeping? Because the lights are on in your house like all night long. And so Jill was in bed and she would ring. Well, she would actually ping me on my phone. Could I, I need to go to the bathroom. Can you come and help me? Because I'd have to carry her. I'd have to help her bathe, make meals. I mean, the whole re reverse role of, of what she was doing as being the at-home mom, I now had to do all that stuff. Now, our daughter was already up and gone from college and she had gotten a job. My son was away at college. So it was just the two of us. But, mm. you know, I had to kind of learn how to do all that stuff. But at any rate, just through sheer will, bulldoggedness, and I'm not going to, I mean, I wanted to quit a lot because it was just, I can't figure out how to do this. And it sounds easy, but there's all these moving parts to being a podcaster. And I've, I've actually been hired to help people start podcasts and almost all of them got halfway through and said, this is too difficult, you know, to do it right. I mean, you can do it half-ass and we all heard those podcasts, but I wanted to do it right. So any rate, yeah, launched the show and uh, did my first show. And for those first, the, probably the first year, it was, you know, I decided <laughs> to do five shows a week. Everybody I talked to in the podcasting world, and I called a lot of pod, I would say about a third of them actually talked to me. The rest just blew me off. They didn't want to tell me anything. They didn't want to share their secrets. Uh, but there were some people that were very helpful to me. And when I said, they said, how many shows a week are you going to do? One, maybe two? Well, I'm going to do five. And they all laughed. And literally, one guy goes, can't do it. Can't do it. Like, what do you mean he can't do it? I, there's people that do it. This guy that does seven a week, you know, a, a week. No, yeah. can't do it. I mean, you, you're going to go insane. Uh, first of all, you're not going to be able to find that many people. And I said, oh, I know a lot of people in the car world. That's not a problem. Mm. Now, convincing them to be on a podcast, that proved to be a different thing. Because most so, people had never been on one. So, so hang on a minute. Why don't we do a long story short on what it takes to set up a podcast. In other words, you call the guy, whatever, you make the appointment, I'm, you know, what's the prep, what's, you know, the interview, what's the editing, I mean, what's involved in one podcast, assuming everything's set up and running smoothly. Yeah, assuming everything okay. goes well, right? And the yeah. software doesn't blow up in your face yeah, or the power doesn't go out or something. Uh, well, first of all, you got to find somebody. So I have a variety of ways that I find somebody. Nowadays, I don't have to find anybody. They come to me, which is wonderful. But uh, And I've learned to make, you make acquaintances with like PR firms, book publishers, reps, advertising agencies. You create this circle of networks of people that you say, I can provide your clients with a free 30-minute commercial on my podcast. But that takes time. That took, that, several, that took several years to build. But an yeah. individual show, uh, you reach out to people. Now, luckily, versus the old days at Warner Design where you had to drive to a building and walk inside and knock on doors, now we have this magical device called an internet. So right. you just start looking for people and you contact them. It's pretty easy to find people these days. Uh, I would even call people. I know a lot of people don't use the phone anymore, but I would, it was my old school training. I would call people and they'd mm -hmm. answer the phone. Even some celebrities, I couldn't believe it. Like, wow, you're talking to me. And you would explain to them what you do and that you would like to have them as a guest. 
And I created some, and you're an example of this. You saw how I communicated with you. Very professional emails. I created a conversation flow that I would send my um, guests that outlined what I was going to ask them because I learned early on a lot of people are very afraid of being interviewed. In fact, I don't even call it an interview. I call it a conversation. And I did that very deliberately because the word interview scares people. They think, ooh, ooh job interview or a date interview. Or this is, ugh, that sounds uncomfortable. But a conversation, like a cars and coffee, right? that's fun, right? Yeah, I was actually surprised when you, well, first of all, you called me and asked me if I'd interview. And hey, that sounds like fun. I'm all about fun. And then you emailed me this document with all these questions. Right. And I'm like, what is this? You mean this is what he's going to ask me and he wants me to like think about what I'm going to say? That's not my vision of an interview. <laughs> That's like some, you know, uh, okay, here's the menu. Uh, here's what you're going to eat. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. And this is for dessert. Um, so I was not used to uh, something like that that was so structured. But, you know, I just followed what you wanted me to do, and I answered those questions. And I guess that's what, to give you an idea of, you know, where I'm at with these questions or structure it differently according to my answers? No. In fact, I don't even like, like it when people pre-answer the questions. I don't even want to see anything. Now, some people will. will. They'll, they'll answer them. They'll write out these long, and I always, I always feel bad. I go, no, no, you didn't need to do that. The reason I did it was at the very beginning, I would contact people and they would be very nervous. And almost everybody would say, what are you going to ask me? Almost everybody. Now you're a different kind of guy. You're, you're, you're of the 5%. And then there's also the celebrities who don't want to spend any time reading anything. And they think they can wing it. Many of them can, but I have, I've had many guests that didn't pay attention to that conversation flow. And as soon as we get to the second question, they say the same thing. I should have read what you sent me. The second question being? Well, the, the, when I get to the second question on my list, which right. is about let's talk about your, your life and your business and what okay. it means to you. Uh, many people, they realize then, oh, Oops. this isn't a usual normal interview. I want to go different places. I want to bring out the business side of you, but also the personal side of you. And sometimes that takes us to very unique places, sometimes very dark places, very uh, uh, scary places, um, if people are so bold to share that with me. But I just learned early on, you want your guest to feel like he's your friend. I want my listeners to feel like I know all these people. And I typically do. And I'll tell you, Greg, uh, you included so many people. Hey, when next time you're out here in the islands, come and see me. Or why don't you come to our factory in England? Or I just interviewed a guy from Poland. You need to come and see the factory we're building, you know. So if only I had a private jet, (laughs) I'd do that. But yeah, so that was the concept behind being very organized and, and being professional because I've been interviewed by a lot of podcasters. And I'm always a little shocked at how unorganized and, and loosey-goosey they are. Like this interview. <laughs> well, you're doing a fine job, Greg. Thank <laughs> you. I feel very comfortable. But <laughs> but a lot of people don't like that. They really want to know what's coming. They don't. And I'm in the media business. And a lot of people in the media business, maybe, I shouldn't say a lot. Some are a little tricky and they try to catch people up with things that are maybe uncomfortable, hoping that their audience will go, ooh, we're going to learn about Greg's girlfriend that he had in college that he ran off to the islands. With. You know, that's not what I want to do. I want to share 
your story around cars so that people listening to us can go, I want to have fun like Mark and Greg are having. Let me just quickly go in another direction here. It's called Show Me the Money. Yeah. Okay, so how did you end up making money with this new podcast venture? Where did you, or did you get your suit on and go knock on doors? <laughs> kind People, of. You, uh, let's have some information here. Yeah, kind of. Um, that was one of my first questions with podcasting, but uh, I'd come from the media world. So it's advertising. So you want to build up an audience so that you have listeners, so that people who are selling products that your audience, your listeners, your avatar would buy are interested in you. That's how most YouTubers make money. It's advertising. Podcasters make money. Radio stations, TV. It's all about advertising and promoting products. So you're actually an influencer. Well, in a way, yeah. There yeah. are there are those influencers that right. are like right. that. I, I try to be more of an inspirer. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, about three months in, I got contacted by a company called NoCo. They make battery chargers. So for cars, you don't drive much. You leave them plugged in. I'd never heard of them, quite interestingly enough. And I thought I knew about all these kind of companies. And so he contacted me and said, hey, I listen to your podcast. Really cool. Do you have advertising? Because I don't hear any advertising on your show. And I, I think I said, now I do. <laughs> but you but. But like in my interview, there's no advertising in there. Where, where's? Oh, yeah, there is. Yeah, there's ads in there. Go back and listen to it again. Maybe I've done a really good job of, <laughs> uh, of streaming them in there. But yes, over time, I've had a variety of advertisers. But basically, podcasters make their money by convincing potential adver or advertisers to do an ad on their show. What I do is I write the ads for my, my advertisers, and then I record it in my voice so it is in in a way I am endorsing that product right. through right. yeah through and you know advertisers come and go things change um, right now the economy is a little dicey so a lot of people have pulled back they always seem to pull advertising back so you have some years that are better than others but that's how you make money doing this I mean there's some podcasters out there that have massive audiences uh, let's pick a big one Adam Carolla. Now he's a big name in, in entertainment. You know he's been around, um, so he his ads are very very expensive uh, for people to run. But he's got millions of listeners, let's say. So, right. but yeah. there's plenty of plenty of ways to do it. There's other ways to do it. I do a weekly email campaign, and you'll see ads on that um, mm -hmm. that those people pay me to do little banner ads on there. Um, also, I've been paid to go and be a speaker at events. Uh, with companies, so a keynote speaker at their dinner, at their conference, at a Concord event, things like that. Uh, as I mentioned, I've been hired by people to help them create podcasts, but mostly podcasters make money through advertising or doing speeches or talks at different events as an influencer or an entertainer almost. I guess you could say. So yeah, that's how you make money doing this. And that's never ending. You got to constantly be out there hustling, right, right. trying to find new people. But that, I'll tell you something, Greg, when I got that first check, I think he paid me a thousand dollars a month at the beginning, but I didn't even know what to charge because I didn't have a huge audience. Uh, but I remember standing in the driveway, opening that envelope, almost crying. You know, I was only three, four months into this going, okay, there's validation here. This might work. So, so nine years in, I mean, the question would be, I assume, you know, since you started it and maybe after, you know, relatively short amount of time, maybe within the first year, yeah. you were making a decent living. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. it's just hustle. You just have to work hard. I mean, it's like any anything else. And 
I always kind of surprised that people that do podcasts and they only do one a week, how they make much money, because this was the other philosophy here. My concept was, and I was doing five shows a week. So I was getting into my listeners' ears 21 times a month. That meant my advertisers were in the listeners' ears wow. tw 21 times a month, not just four, a la once a week okay. show. Yeah. There's right. a benefit there. It's like a radio show. You know, you used to listen to whatever radio show you used when we all used to commute and listen to radio shows. You hear the same mattress ad, the same insurance ad, the same guy selling liquor down the street ad, but it was constant. That's how advertising is is effective. It's not, I, I have people that even to this day say, well, I'll try you out for a month. And I say, don't bother. Yeah. That good. doesn't work. You, you have to be consistent, especially right. if you're a product that nobody's ever heard of because we're all getting inundated by shiny white objects. Yeah. And, and I'm sure they could see results or I'm sure you must have had feedback from some of your advertisers oh, sure. saying, hey, this is working. My sales have increased consistently. Yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, it's hard these days for advertisers unless there's special offers to right. your ad because there's so many ways to advertise now. And yeah. so what I would always tell people that couldn't do special offers is, OK, let's look at last year. What was your increase in sales? Well, we're up 24 percent. OK. Everything you're doing was great. Do more of that. Right, right. Like move your ad from the end of my show to the front of the show so people pay more attention to it. Or instead of a 45-second spot, do a minute and a half spot. Or how about instead of the same ad over and over again, let's do four different ads so every day there's something different. Right, right. It's okay. just it's that creative side, yeah. But uh, this is the great thing about this world we live in now. You can create a brand. I mean, when I, when I started this, People knew who Richard Griot was in Griot's Garage, but right. a lot of people didn't even know I worked there. I mean, I was the president of the company. Never heard of you. Yeah. Well, yeah. why? Who? I didn't, you know, I wasn't the name on the door. No, he was the public face. Right. Yeah. It's like Mrs. Fields Cookies. Well, but she had people in the background helping her, right? Yeah. 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 So I had to create this brand out of thin air. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it, it's been a fun ride. In nine years, it's been a long ride. <laughs> Sometimes I go, nine, you know, this is show number 2325, 2,325 shows, plus the show that I did 29 episodes for Keith Martin, Sports Car Market. I produced and hosted, co-hosted that show for him, Buy, Sell, Hold. And so, yeah, that's a lot of, it, it's a lot of work. <laughs> that's for and sure. So, so back to the work um, on time spent. So now that you have it, obviously completely wired um how many hours a day how many hours a day do you spend on your business on an average well it's a probably a normal work day when i say normal because i've never known about what a normal work day is but i would say if you exclude some of the external marketing efforts like right. social media marketing and stuff which can get gray if you waste too much time there i could do and i've throttled back to four shows this year that was to allow more time to spend with my grandson. I've got an incoming granddaughter now. And I want to kind of slow down a little bit and spend a little bit more time doing. I have some other things I'm working on that I want to do. And so I would say five show a week show easily is a six to eight hour work day, five days yeah. a week, easily. It can be more. Uh, if you're a little more streamlined and conscientious, it could maybe be less. But you're your own boss, so you can do it whenever you want. Right, right. Well, yeah, well, I remember in my interview, 
we ended up talking for a couple hours. When my interview was over, we started talking about you, and that's where I got the idea. It's like, hey, I need to interview you, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, having said that, you know, the amount of time and effort and knowledge that you had to pull together to make this thing work is basically the story of your life. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty so much. Yeah. Up to that point right. is the knowledge, the experience, the connections, you know, putting it all together uh, to where it is now. Well, definitely. And, you know, I've thought about what is the next thing for me, you know, when I want to stop doing this, I don't want the show to end. And I, when I started this, I didn't make it the Mark Green podcast. I made it a brand. Right. That somebody could pick up the torch and carry on further. Right. But at the same time, when I started thinking about, you know, there's a whole process of how that could happen. But there's also, I, I mentioned this to a friend of mine who's retired now at lunch. And I, he said, well, do you ever, like, when are you going to retire? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about what that means right now. That's, that's a different era. That, that word retire is, should be like yeah. basically taken out of the dictionary because the gold watch and the rocking chair are gone. Oh, way gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But for, for I think Reinvent. it's more, yeah, it's more for what do you want to do with your life next? Right. What, what is that phase? Go surfing, uh, go to car events, work on a car, whatever it is, paint, whatever it is. So, um, yeah, but for me, I would like to see cars, yeah, continue on because I, I truly believe it can. And he, he said to me, yeah, but it's you. And I go, no, I don't see it that way. It's my guess. I've always seen it that way. Now, I get it. I'm the guy that talks to you listeners every day. But to me, it's more about the guests. It's the stories of the people like what you're doing with me today. I could probably do two, three hour shows on everybody. Right. Of but, course you could. Yeah. But, but know, who would listen to him? I guess if you're Joe Rogan and you interview a famous movie star you'll list, or Elon Musk, you'll listen for three hours. But uh, maybe people's lives aren't that interesting. So I, I, I try to con- – interesting to everybody. They're interesting, of course. I try to condense it down. It's all long story short. You can't – you know. You you can't tell somebody's whole life in you know an hour. Oh, you try to pick up the interesting parts, but I'll go back to your original question. You think about you need to make a contact with somebody. You need to make an appointment with them. They need to call in. You need to record the show. Then you need to go back and edit the show. Okay, hang on. Edit. How long does it take? I mean, after all this time, basically to edit your average show. Average show's about 35 to 40 minutes long, and I can edit that in about 45 minutes. Now, I, I've had in the past editors who do that for me. Uh, they did great jobs, but I'm a little more picky. Right. And I try really hard to make my guests sound better than they sound. And uh, if you think about the way most people speak, there's a lot of ums and uhs and awkward pauses or external sounds you need to fix Right. So I try to, yeah, I think to be fair from the time I sit down to edit a show and I have to build a show notes page for each guest, which goes on my website. Yeah. Why I have pictures. I write a few notes there. I'd say at least an hour to have that show up and ready. And then I need to feed it into my RSS feed, which goes out to all the places a podcast goes. Uh. So there's all these technical elements that you have to learn, you have to do. But I, I'd say a minimum of an hour per show from the time, right. you know, from the time you hit, hello, thanks for calling in and right. the show's posted and you can walk away. But then there's that time before. Now, some guests 
I'll reach out to, and I'll record that show the next day. Others, I have to send 20, 30 emails to them. Yeah, some want to talk before you do the interview, which I I don't mind, but I don't like it because it eats up extremely valuable time. And, And I think, Greg, it goes back to the concept of what do you want to do with your life? You and I are at a point in our lives where time is becoming more and more precious because we have less and less of it. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Trying to evaluate how you use that time in your life that we took for granted when we were young because we thought we had so much of it. So Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's uh, something that you really have to contemplate. And I'm in that process right now in my life, kind of at this zone of I have a grandson. I'm going to have a granddaughter. My son and his wife want to have kids. I'm going to have, I want to spend time with them because I never got to spend time with my grandparents. Well, you know, you don't have to do, I mean, if you ever move on from cars, yeah. Um, I mean, I got to say, you don't have to do anything because your time will be consumed just with whatever it is that you want to do for that day. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. (laughs) And so it's not like you have to figure out, well, if I'm not doing this anymore, what am I going to do? Well, you can just forget about all that and just have your days free for whatever comes your way. Well, and that's that's such a foreign concept. It's a hard thing to do. It takes skill yeah. and a lot of uh, experience in doing it to get comfortable with that. Well, I, I may be calling my psychologist, Greg Blue, for these uh, you know daily prep talks of, okay. Now, I've been talking with a lot of friends because I'm at, at that age now. I'm 65, turned 65 in January of... Uh, the next evolution, I've been watching YouTubers that talk about it. And it seems kind of funny, but you and I know it. I have friends who know it now. How do you, you can't just sit around and do nothing all day. You'll just die. That That's a bad deal. My dad, when he retired, <laughs> I laugh at that term, he threw his TV set away. And, and I remember going to his house and seeing it by the trash can. I said, dad, what happened to your TV? I'm throwing that debt death box out of here good for him and i said what do you mean he said i have my friends that retire and they sit around and watch tv and they die i'm not going to do that so he he was even i mean he worked a lot but he was even busier in his retirement he started he started doing things where he would give back to people and one of the things he did was he started something called living through art and he started oh, each yeah we talked about this that was really interesting yeah, yeah he uh, he taught people with terminal illnesses how to create artwork these are people that were going to die for sure soon. And so he created art studios on his property and he would invite these people over and teach them how to create things. And it did a couple things. It got their focus off of their illness and into the art. It made him feel good because he was helping people divert their attention from imminent death. And it left something behind for their families to have of these people that they would have never had. Most of these people never did art. They didn't even know they could do art. My dad always said, anybody can do art. Mm. I just need You just need the skills, and I'll teach you the skills. So he got really busy doing that and a bunch of other things. But the focus is, and it goes back to even cars, yeah, is we need to do things we love. And if we love cars, we love being around cars, we love being around motorcycles, trucks, find a way to have a career in that. And if you go to my website, you'll find 2,300 plus people who figured it out, and they'll tell you how they did it. Well, the cars, the cars are the medium that allows you to meet the people. I mean, my old Carrera GT is my ticket. Oh, okay, yeah. I don't think I've ever been turned down for any kind of event because of that particular vehicle. 
And through that vehicle, and I've only owned it, what, seven or eight years, I have met so many people that are really good friends of mine that I constantly communicate with and that I go out, you know, I'm doing the Ram's Horn next week and the SCM and the Pebble Beach Motoring Classic. And I just went to the Luftgehold with my, you know, the 964 RSR on Saturday. I flew over there. Nice car. And ran into, you know, Steve Harris and, you know, Alan. And, I mean, you know, that's the ticket. But, you know, like your dad, that commitment that he made I mean, sounds like it could have become overwhelming. I mean, that's quite different. It than, did. Yeah, yeah. He had he had to stop because, uh, as he said one time, he said, "Well, number one, I was it was so much work, and number two is he was going to funerals every week, and it started to take an emotional toll on him, and he really had to throttle back because it was he was getting close with these people. And I'll tell you, when he passed away, it's been six years since he passed away here in May. When we did his life celebration at his home, which is where he taught all this artwork, there were so many people. I had no idea he had that many friends. All these people showed up, and we found a warehouse full of all this artwork he had created. He sold some of his artwork, but that isn't why he did it. For him, personally, it was his outlet. And so we put all this artwork out, and we told everybody, you can take one of these pieces with you. Everything was gone. And I thought, my sister and I said, how are we going to throw away dad's art? Oh, we can't keep all this stuff. Mm. And it was all. In fact, there were some pieces I, I should have kept because I wanted them, but somebody walked off with it because they wanted it. So, um, yeah, but uh, it's it's uh, it goes back to what you said is cars are the catalyst for the people. And if you can figure out a way to help people or make people happier, you did it in a very simple gesture with me. I mentioned, oh, I've always wanted one of those hats, and you handed it to me. Now, for you, the hat wasn't as important. For me, I've always wanted one because I have all these hats, you know, and so, <laughs> and you know, to protect my head from the sun. So just that little gesture, and look where we are. You're interviewing me on my show. How am I doing? You're doing great. Yeah, I'm looking down going, Who's if anyone's still listening, thank you. <laughs> this will be the longest show ever. <laughs> I mean, has this gone up in smoke yet? I don't think so. No, I think we're having fun. And that's what it's all about, is is inspiring people. And hopefully, through our talk today, that I've sparked something, and I know you did in your talk, because I, I even, when I was at Exotics at Redmond Town Center, a few people said, that guy you had on your show, Greg, that was kind of a different show. And I told you that. You were a different kind of guest, because you didn't work in the car world, but you were passionate about cars. But we got into your life. And, and what a life you've had. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I told my son this morning when you were going to interview me, Greg is the antithesis of me because you were so much braver with your life than I ever was. I was always careful. Uh, I don't know, man. That decision to pack <laughs> your bags and move from La Jolla, okay, up to Washington was pretty big. Well, I appreciate that. And And looking back, sometimes when you look at things you do and you go, wow. I did that, but I'm glad I did it because it was, it felt bold. It felt yep. brave. It felt, felt scary, but it allowed so many other things in my life and my family's life to happen that probably wouldn't have happened. Joe would have probably kept working because we had the family there to help with the kids. Um, where that would have gone, I, I don't know. But the fact that we did learn, if you can stay home and raise your own kids, you better do that. Yeah. Especially these yeah. days. Yeah. There's just too many other 
bad influences out there right now. And I, I worry about, I don't worry about my kids because they're great parents, will be, my son. But even my son has talked about, I'm, I'm going to have homeschooling or we're going to figure out something different, mm. you know, for our kids because he and his wife work, but they work at home. It's, it's a different world now. But you know what? Don't be afraid to take a bold step. I mean, paddle for that wave. Right, Greg? Yeah. Take yeah. off. And what's the worst going to happen? It's going to pound you to the to the sand or the reef. You might get cut up a little bit, but you'll come up and you'll go, maybe next time I'll be able to make that. Well, you know, let's go back to the future again for a moment. Okay. Okay. Just the idea that if you ever decide to transition out of Cars Yeah, that you feel that you need to do something else, okay? That, to me, is some kind of box that a lot of people think uh, they're going to be challenged with. And that might create a need in them to figure out what it is when, in fact, if they just trusted the universe they wouldn't have to think that they had to do anything and they could just be themselves. Boy, yeah, you and I need some, we need to do some counseling, meaning you need to counsel me because that concept is so, it's a tough thing for me to grab. I know it exists and I feel like I can do it, but here's the deal. I was talking to Jill, my wife, the other day about how a secession plan might work so that cars, yeah, doesn't, I don't want to just die. I think it's too valuable because of the feedback I get from listeners. Oh, it could be passed on. Yeah, it could be passed on. So she said to me, okay, that sounds great, but what are you going to do every day? And that's an important question because my whole life I've always had something I have to do. I've never been able to have the freedom. And as I'm saying this, I'm thinking that's not right, Mark, because you chose that was the freedom to do all those things you did. Okay, let, let me stop you there for a second. Okay. okay. When she asked you, what are you going to do every day? Here's okay. why she asked me. Let me explain that. Okay. I don't sit around very well. I, yeah, meaning yeah. I, who does? Oh, a lot of people do. I, I see people that sit in front of their TV all day. Okay, but that's not you. To me, I I don't I don't like TV. I I want to do something. I, I I you know the idea of waking up and well, see, you live in paradise, so you can go walk on the beach and go surfing. Well, look, look. <laughs> the first thing that anybody's going to do any day is get up and eat breakfast, right? Okay. Okay. So that's how you start your day. Okay. When you're done with breakfast, you're sitting there and you're like. Let's see what's next. Oh, I got to go do this over here. Something will come up. Okay, you may call an old friend. You may need to go to the bank. I mean, who knows what, man. And if you go through the whole day, you got to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, Obviously, you're going to hope to get some exercise to move your blood. That takes time. Okay, you're going to be connecting with people you know for one reason or another. And if you add all that together, it's not too difficult to pass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, what you're sharing, I've heard from a lot of people. And I just talked to a guy this weekend, the same, same thing. He said, yeah. I'm busier than I've ever been. And I'm thinking, how can that be? Like you ran a venture capital company, you know, 
And he goes, well, you develop other interests. Other interests, yeah. Okay, I mean, I play ping pong every day. I'm passionate about it. I play every single day. Oh, wow. It's cool. fast. It's a longe- uh, longevity program because eye-body coordination, um, I've gone so far as to take lessons from professionals. It's an unbelievable sport that you can do with very little space if you've got somebody you know to play with. And I've become extremely passionate, and it is fast and furious. And I mean, you know, I can look at my pulse, and you know, it's like a hundred or a hundred and ten. And when I'm done, I got to go take a shower. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's an hour out of every day, and I get up in the morning at seven o'clock and go to the beach and swim. And by the time I'm home, it's eight o'clock and time for breakfast. I mean, time flies, you know. And you know, I might suggest. Uh, to anybody who's nervous about, you know, stopping whatever it is they're doing at some stage and moving on to the next part of their life is not to have any preconceived notions that you have to do something. Well, there you go. It's a different mindset, right? It's a different way to think about. And a lot of these people, like your friend that said, Oh, I'm busier than I've ever been. I bet you he would also say, because I've heard it before from people like that, I don't know how the hell I did what I did for so long. I just can't even believe I did that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, yeah. I didn't have any time to live. Right. Well, there you go. Live. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, and, you know, life, L I F E, if, L I F E, is half of life. There you go. Okay. It's <laughs> half of life. Nice way to so, say it. So, you know, you will definitely find your way. Opportunities will present themselves when you least expect them. Uh, things will arise that you have to deal with. Uh, it will not be an issue getting through one day after the other. And you will find some way to use those creative juices that run through you because you will be drawn to things that attract that energy. I believe that's true. You know, one thing I've thought about is writing a book about this journey at Cars Yeah. There you go. The concept of what I've learned after 2,500 conversations. That would be beneficial to... Lots of people. A multitude of people. Exactly, yeah. And you've got a brand, you know? That's true. So, uh, (laughs) you know, I'd buy one. Well, there you go, my first sale. You heard it here. He's going to buy a book. You know, this conversation has been fun. And I'll tell you, listeners, that when Greg offered this, I said, well, what are you going to ask me? He goes, I don't know. And you've learned that now listening. Hopefully you listen to my talk with Greg on his interview with me and this talk now that Greg's one of these guys that has a very um, Hawaiian outlook, I think, on life and and that what will be will be a little bit. But you've had this career. So you've enlightened me today. And inspired me to think about some things that maybe I haven't thought about as I continue on whatever this journey, wherever this journey takes me, I should say. Uh, and we never know. You know, if you open yourself up when the day comes that you pass this on or whatever, if you open yourself up completely open and absorb whatever it is around you and channel that and respond to it, that is how you move forward 
And when those opportunities present themselves, whatever they are, you've got the knowledge to know, okay, this one's a red flag. This one is a twisty and I want to drive it. <laughs> yeah. So Nicely said. You know, that's, that's what you're in for. And it's a great journey. And, you know, I'd like to interview you again in a couple of years. Okay. Okay. And we could continue the conversation. It would be, what happened to Mark? Where did Mark go? Yeah, what happened to Mark? Well, I appreciate the opportunity you gave me here. I mean, this, this will be... This is a long show, hour and 20 minutes here. I mean, if any of you listeners are still there, thank you. I appreciate you. We may have to split it up. I, in fact, when we first talked about it, I said, look, there's no way that this is going to be an edited 40-minute interview. Yeah. There's just no way. Yeah. And you might have to split it up. So, you know, maybe to, you know, save your listeners the pain of <laughs> listening to the entire thing, yeah. you might want to split it up into Part one and 2.0. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a good idea. Uh, well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. You've, you've added some insight into my thought process. It's fun to share a little bit of my background and how I got to this point. Because it fascinated me. It fascinated well, well, thank you. It, it's kind of fascinating when you stop and think about anybody listening thinks about their own life and how did I get here, uh, to quote the words from a, a certain rock song we used to listen to, how did I get here? Uh, so, yeah, it's important to do that. But I think it's more important to understand and realize am what I is what I'm doing important and where am I going, too. And I like the way you thought about if you open yourself up and let the universe in and let what will be will be. Uh, you never know where it might go. You might meet a guy uh, at a car tour who will give you his hat and you end up being friends with him someday. So you never know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you never know. Greg, this has been fun. And I want to thank you for taking time out of your wonderful life in Maui. Uh, to spend with me and uh, yeah maybe we get together in a, a year or two but we're going to be talking long before that uh hopefully i'll see you during car week unless that baby doesn't show up my first granddaughter that's due in august uh that may thwart my efforts but uh rent sport you going to be at rent sport not sure um i've got a couple trips planned this year uh that we were going to do before covid we're going to japan for a month we rent a camper van going to hokkaido june july and the whole month of September, we're going to be in Turkey wow. uh, swimming down the Lycian coast. <laughs> um, you know, throw in uh, Pebble Beach and a couple other things. I'm sort of booked up. Yeah, sounds like you figured out how to have a great life. So, uh, again, I, I will ask you, I may be calling you for some therapy sessions here, just some motivation and some thought process and a way to open my mind into places that has never been opened. So uh, keep your phone line open, okay? Well, it's called 1-800-GREG. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, you inspired me. You know, I do the Pebble Beach Motoring Classic every year. Yeah. And Ron and Margie Dance, who are great people that live up in Seattle, do these incredible entertainment skits uh, on the 10-day journey from, you know, Seattle down to Pebble Beach. And there's, you know, there's going to be like 20, 25 cars. So you're talking about 40 you know, the 50 people, and they're famous for it, okay? And they're outrageous skits. Well, they're not going this year. They are on Maui a while ago, and I don't think they're going this year. And so I got the idea to do interviews on the tour 
and call it Greg's Grill. There you go. That was an inspiration from you. And so my long story short plan is to go check out somebody's car every night and notice a bunch of details and get them up there and grill them. (laughs) And I have no idea what's going to happen or how it's going to go, but I'm going to do it and have fun. And so now we got to figure out who had more fun on this interview, you or me? I think think we both had a great time. (laughs) That's what it's all about, right? Again, I I can't thank you enough for spending time with me here today. And uh, most definitely we'll be together again. And uh, thank you. Uh, you and thank you to the listeners again for hanging out with us and hearing a little bit of a different story today. But mostly, Greg, thank you for taking time because such a pleasure. I got to say, if I was sitting in Maui right now, I'd be on a beach <laughs> versus talking to some guy uh, about some silly idea to start a podcast. But I really, really am grateful for your time because that is our most valuable asset. Okay, well, I got uh, had a papaya fruit salad for breakfast, and I got a ripe avocado I picked yesterday on the counter for lunch, so I'm going to sign off. That sounds wonderful. Well, my friend, thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you, you listeners. Until you and I talk again, Greg. Aloha. Aloha. Thanks, my friend. Awesome. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up way up. But my usage was the same and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around. I asked friends for recommendations and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. Their talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. You know what? We are all wired differently, and not everyone needs to go to a four-year university. Technical education and the skilled trades matter, and one can build a solid career as an auto, diesel, or collision technician. There are no longer blue-collar jobs, they're new-collar careers, as the technology and skill sets have become so advanced. Support career and technical education by getting involved with TechForce Foundation. It's a Cars Yeah! charity of choice. Learn more at techforce.org. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. 
Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!